Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. This is episode 19. Um, my name is Dave Gibney. I'm your host. Sadly, we're missing Claire O'Connor today. She's had a last minute emergency, so hopefully everything's all right there. Um, but with me, I do have two great activists and uh, you might know one or two of them, but uh, Owen Fox is here. He's a shop steward at Mandate Trade Union and works in Marks and Spencers in Galway. Uh, he's been on the Debenhams picket lines the last couple of weeks, so he, he knows a, a fair bit about what's been going on there. And with us as well is Claire Daly, uh, Irish MEP, former TD, um, and uh, yeah, she, she might be able to give us a bit of an insight into what's going on around Europe um, in relation to COVID and some of the other things. But as usual, what we normally do is we review the front pages of the main newspapers of the weekend. So I'll go first to you, Owen. Have you seen anything on the front pages or what papers have you been looking at? Yeah, well, I give the, um, thanks for having me on there, by the way. Um, if the Irish Times weekend edition here in front of me and um, yeah, I suppose they're kind of leading with the um, government expects to reopen all the pubs by mid-September, which is, suppose, is a good sign for any of us who would like to have a pint, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it does raise issues with the health and safety of the workers, which is where our interest would lie in the workers in the pubs, you know, and, and, and the health and safety measures that have been put in place to protect those workers. Um, but they are saying here that they're hoping to have them open by the middle of September. Um, like it's it seems more aspirational than anything else because then there's still there's no kind of concrete uh, concrete proposals there to open them safely but just that they are hoping and I could see during the week you know, Edgar, which I thought was quite funny um, now saying that he wants the pubs opened uh, when he's not really in the front the front line of, of the government like which is uh, interesting and the other one on the front page of that is masks key to minimizing COVID-19 deaths in Ireland. And um, I, I'd say I'd have to agree there working in retail. And there has definitely been an uplift in the amount of people that are wearing the masks around the town, particularly on the public transport and coming into the shops, which is a good thing. Um, and it does, whether it actually protects us or not is, is of course, questionable. But um, oftentimes working on the shop floor, you can't actually hear anybody asking you anything, so you find yourself getting closer to them, reducing the social distancing. So there is uh, questions to be raised about that, you know. Um, and the other one is it, on the front page there on the weekend edition of the Irish Times, points to the supplement, the weekend supplement inside, and the story of Avi Nihulabon and the two years of harassment she faced in Una Malali's um, article there, and the two years of harassment by Avi Nihulabon and suffered in working in UCD, you know, and uh, we might talk a bit more about that later on, Dave. If yeah, yeah, definitely. It was a really interesting article. I mean, like two years of, of quite, quite awful harassment in the workplace, like, and um, what we can actually do about that, you know, to prevent it from happening in the future and strengthening the laws around it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's all I can see here on the front page of the week in addition. Well, I'll go quickly then through the other uh, newspapers that I've been looking at. Um, on the front page of uh, the Irish Examiner this weekend, um, tourism jobs face wipeout from ban on travel. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's talking about the numbers and the passengers uh, coming through Cork Airport specifically. It is here saying that um, they grew their passengers from 2015 uh, from 2 million to 2.6 million last year, an extra 600,000. But uh, the airport had been forecasting 2.7 million uh, people to pass through it this, this year, but that has completely plunged, as you'd imagine, and they've lost 95% of all passengers. So 
there's um you know there's there's more articles in Sunday uh, Independent later on about seeking um, like the DAA and all of the airport operators seeking that the government uses state aid which is banned through the EU, but Germany has used provisions around state aid to rescue its airports um, during this crisis. So there's arguments that maybe the Irish should be doing something similar. And um, there's a uh, front page of the examiner still is the leaving grade, leaving cert grade inflation fears. People who've done the leaving cert in the past who uh, have achieved certain grades now that they're doing a different sort of you know, uh, uh, grading system that, there's worries that those people who are looking to do a course in uh, college now might not have the points because everybody else this year will have higher points as a result of how it's graded. Um, I don't know how true that's going to be or, or, or not. There's the von der Leyen uh, seeding after the delay in uh, the naming of the proposed uh, EU commissioners from Ireland, um, which Claire might have some insight onto, but... Uh, yeah, as we all know, Phil Hogan, Golfgate stuff, he's gone. So the, the two people who are nominated to, to, to step in, Mairead McGuinness, who's a current MEP, and Fine Gael advisor Andrew McDowell have been named as the, uh, the, the two candidates for von der Leyen, who's going to interview them this week uh, for that post. Uh, as you know, Simon Coveney pulled out of the race at the last minute, which we uh, we don't like to brag on this show, but we did say a couple of weeks ago that we couldn't see... Uh, uh, Coveney going for it, not for the reasons that are out there in that he's saying he wanted the trade portfolio, couldn't get it. But we felt that, you know, the um, the government doesn't have massive numbers of support. It's weak. If he goes, um, not only do we obviously lose, they, they, do they lose a minister, but they have to, it would trigger a by-election. Whereas Mairead McGuinness takes it uh, or Andrew and, you know, there's no by-election. Um, so they're, with them not being a strong government, I, don't, I think that might have played on their minds a little bit too. Um, and then there's the very, very sad story of uh, Tiago uh, Cortez, the delivery uh, driver um, who was killed last week, uh, during the week, um, by a hit and run. The car was found abandoned and burnt out. Um, we still don't know who was driving it. Um, there's an investigation into that, but... It's a an article in the Examiner uh, on the inside, page 11. It just points to, to, to go to page 11 because it was bet, one of his best mates was saying, you know, I have to work, uh, but I might die. And it's talking, the article's really good, actually, because it talks about this, um, the precarious nature of the jobs that we have now, especially during this pandemic, where these guys are, be, are being paid below the minimum wage, but they're self-employed. So that's completely fine by the law. And they're having to run around, rush around all over the city to try and get as many deliveries because they're paid per delivery. Um, and they have to get as many deliveries as they can get in, in, you know, in the space of an hour to try and make up enough money. And, you know, it's, it's a very sad story um, that, you know, he, he, he was risking his life. And these, these delivery drivers are all risking their lives right now, uh, not just through the COVID stuff, but, but, you know, navigating through traffic in Dublin city centre. So um, that's the Irish Examiner. And the Sunday Independent has hospital wards shut over virus outbreak. Um, it's, it's a Dublin hospital, Beaumont Hospital. Uh, three patients and two staff have tested positive and at least 10 staff are now uh, believed to be self-isolating. An email alerting staff to the outbreak <laughs> uh, in the subject line, it says, COVID is back. 
this is the email to all staff in Beaumont. Uh, a second email was sent to consultants last weekend and it said an increasing number of doctors were either at home sick with COVID or being asked to self-isolate uh, due to, you know, close contacts and that. It appears that, you know, yesterday we had more than 200 people infected. So we appear to be, you know, still in, a, in that battle against uh, COVID and the, the numbers going up again. Um, on yeah, the other hard, side, it's hard to see how they're going to open the pubs if the numbers are increasing like that. Like, yeah, well, you know, despite what they're saying in the papers, you know. Well, I mean, this is the problem that they have. I mean, if the numbers are going up, uh, you can just based on precedent, you could they can hardly open the, the yeah. pubs. Um, and and Claire, you might want to come in here uh, on this one, but before you do, I'll just finish off the front page of the Sunday Indo. Uh, Brexit's back. Coveney slams UK nationalism as the headline up in the top right-hand corner. Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney has told the Sunday Independent that UK pride, emotion and na nationalism is threatening to bring about a no-trade Brexit deal uh, that will add 1.5 billion in tariffs to Ireland's food exports in just four months' time. So I don't know, Claire, if you want to comment on any of those stories from a European perspective or let us know what's going on in Brussels. Uh, I'd love to comment on them all, actually. There's just so many of them there, uh, to be honest with you. But I mean, you know, I spent practically most of the COVID situation over here in Brussels. And I suppose looking at Ireland from a distance, it does seem to be much more restrictive in terms of how we're dealing with COVID than a lot of the rest of mainland Europe is doing. And I thought your article that you read out about tourism jobs and the transport sector was very uh, relevant because the inconsistency and the changes in a lot of the government guidelines in Ireland are actually jeopardizing a lot of jobs in the transport sector. I mean, it's not obviously confined to Ireland. We had a presentation during the week in the Parliament where the figures were given that there's been a reduction of 4 million flights across the Eurozone in the past year, a loss of 970 million passengers, which obviously is a huge ramification for air, airport workers, airline workers, and all the other ancillary shops and all the other services. But what's adding to it is these contradictory guidelines across Europe, where you can travel from one country to another EU country and you might have to quarantine and then you go to a different place uh, and you don't have to do it. And all the different guidelines are playing into that. So you made the point, Dave, about the Germans uh, always wanting to look after their own industry, relax and state aid. But actually, European Commission allows all countries to relax state aid to save their industries. And a lot of airport workers in Ireland have made the point that a lot of the main airlines across Europe have got subsidies, huge intervention to the tune of billions like. Um, but companies like Aer Lingus are leaving workers out to dry. And uh, as you probably know, and your listeners probably know, Aer Lingus workers, the ones who are left, are on 30% of their wages at the moment in a really precarious um, position. And uh, there hasn't been any intervention from the government. And actually, the company itself has been really callous as well. So uh, a lot of inconsistencies there. I mean, in terms of life going on in Europe, it's pretty much a lot more normal than it seems to be in Ireland. I mean, the figures for COVID are probably higher in Brussels, but like things like we wear masks everywhere, which is incredibly annoying when you're walking on the street. Uh, but masks are worn everywhere. Uh, they've been mandatory like in shops and that for a long time, which is good. But like last weekend, I brought my daughter back to the Netherlands. So there wasn't a single mask in sight anywhere. So I think these inconsistencies are a bit mad. It's one virus 
we're all impacted in the same way by science and the health authorities haven't got a uniform message has been a real uh, topic of conversation here this week as MEPs come back from the summer they're all kind of going well how come there's so many different rules in different places because all the pubs have been open here for months and uh, there hasn't been a, a massive dramatic um, you know, rocketing up the schools, all the rest are, I wouldn't say pretty much as normal, but yeah, compared to Ireland, they are, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, just, I'll, I'll come back to the schools thing in a second, but the, what, what, you wouldn't have seen this because I'm sure you don't get the Irish Examiner over in Brussels, but there's a, in the weekend edition in the business section, there's two articles right beside each other. And I, find, I always find this really funny in the Irish media that, that, that they could print these type of stories where one says, Ryanair calls for government to cover Dublin airport financial losses. And that's the article about state aid and saying that the German example should be followed in Ireland to ensure a stable and viable DAA and adherence to the price cap. Now, what they're doing, what, what Reiner are calling for there is because um, they, they're really worried about the fees, you know, the, the landing fees that they're going to review that. They just got a cut in that, I think, of about 12 to 15 percent in the last year. And they're, Reiner are worried that the, the DAA are going to have to increase that to try and cover some of the losses. So they're saying the government should come in and, and bail it out. And then right over on the, on the right beside it, an article, O'Leary bonus questioned. A proposed €458,000 annual bonus for Ryanair boss Michael O'Leary has come under fire as an influential investor advisory firm urged shareholders to oppose the package. Um, and so... <laughs> at a time when, and you're talking about Claire about um, Aer Lingus staff, you know, on thirty percent pay, it, it actually goes further down and talks about Willie Walsh's uh, golden handshake, um, you know, from Aer Lingus and British Airways owner IAG, eight hundred and eighty-three thousand pounds, nine hundred and ninety-two thousand euros. He's getting for retiring, um, and again, the shareholders are asking uh, not to go ahead with this sort of package but I mean this is the inequality that we have throughout even whatever about the COVID crisis it's just a consistent inequality where you have a bunch of workers living off 30% of their pay packet but the guy the CEO who's already earning millions is going to get a golden handshake I mean it's infuriating if you're a staff member there in either Ryanair or in Aer Lingus and I'm sure across the rest of Europe um, similarly, on the same page, it says that the way subsidy scheme costs uh, in Ireland has now, uh, it, it's over the temporary wage subsidy scheme, they've brought in the new one, but in total it costs $2.9 billion, um, which was obviously the state topping up the incomes of workers so that employers uh, didn't have to pay the full fee. And there's an article somewhere else in one of these newspapers. I'll come to you, Owen, about this in a second because you're in retail. But it talks about, I think it's Dan O'Brien's piece in the Sunday Indo, which is a really interesting piece, even though I don't agree with him on anything, but uh, it talks about how Ireland booked the trend across Europe for the la during the COVID crisis for increasing its spend in retail. So retail in Ireland boomed compared to everywhere else in Europe, um, especially after they opened all the general stores. So Owen, you might be able to give us a sort of a, uh, an insight into what it's been like working through uh, in retail through the COVID crisis. Yeah, um, it's certainly busier. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we're, there's more people in the shop now than there has been for a couple of years. And, that, and that's, that's the reality of it. And, uh, there are some retailers that are doing better than others in regards to counting in and counting out the numbers of people in the shops and different issues like that that we're working on on the ground as, as, as reps. Um, and the mandatory masks certainly helped a lot in the sense that when the guidance was coming from the government, 
and it took the emphasis off and the staff members reminding people to be wearing masks, which of course can put yourself at risk, like if it's if it's somebody that's being kind of aggressive towards you and stuff. Um, one of the things I have noticed is particular is, and it kind of ties into the um, <laughs> the article about the banning multi-pack buys of uh, fruit and veg in in the grocery sector. Which I mean, if you're ever wanting an example of blue shirts on bikes, I mean, there you go. I mean, good food is expensive. Um, and the amount of people that rely on multi-pack buys for fruit and veg in particular, I mean, we're not talking about multi-pack buys of biscuits and sweets here. We're talking about oranges and fruit and veg and the stuff that you actually need to get your one in five a day. And to be talking about this now when kids have just gone back to school and there's people trying to fill lunch boxes and they actually come out and saying, what's the direct quote? The government is also mulling a ban on the sale of multi-packs to try to prevent people overbuying in supermarkets. I mean, how far removed do you actually get from the reality of people? Like, it's 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 quite incredible. And then, of course, on the very that next page... I can't believe that. Oh, no, I mean, I have never heard the like of that, when yeah. now obesity and diabetes and health problems are killing more people than alcohol and drugs. This is madness. Like, it's crazy, it's crazy. And, and the, very, the very next page on in the Irish Times is a full page ad for the stay and spend tax credit which of course is another example of how low paid and ordinary people aren't getting any of the benefits that the government are putting out because if you don't pay a tax you don't get it yeah. and most and there's a lot of low paid very low paid workers particularly working in retail that we represent in mandate that won't be able to apply for it yeah so, i mean it's just examples spread all over the place of how they're completely removed from the reality of ordinary people you know completely well, Inequity, and I mean, we look at these bailouts, and where is the money going? And I think the airline industry is a very good example of that, Dave, because it's not just you look at the likes of, of Ryanair and that. Um, we had Wizz Air here in Europe, one of the low cost carriers. There's reports coming out of those companies about COVID being an opportunity for them because a lot of the other airlines are going to the wall. Wizz Air, Air lauded the fact that they had enough liquidity to ride out the storm they'd loads of money and then they turned around and cut their workers wages by 25 percent announced at over a thousand redundancies and at the same time took an order for 15 new aircraft so actually covid is good business for some people it's been massively good business for an awful lot of people we've seen uh, there's actually an article i don't think it's in any of the papers this weekend but um about jeff bezos uh, now having over 200 billion uh in wealth as a result of the covid crisis um, because people are obviously buying a lot more online now but you know it, it's there's plenty of resources out there as i said retail in Ireland has boomed over the last number of months since COVID kicked off. Bars are obviously really struggling. So we've got almost two economies going alongside each other. And um, which one of the decisions, and we've said it on this show before, you know, when retail is booming, why in God's name would you cut VAT? You know, <laughs> you, you, you cut VAT if you're trying to encourage people to spend more and buy more in the shops. Um, but, but cutting it when you know, we're already spending a huge amount more. Plus, we have saved, we saved last, the last six months in terms of savings and deposits. People have saved um, the same amount. I think it was 10 billion extra in people's bank accounts now uh, compared to the previous two years it took 
to save that same amount of money. So in six months, they said Irish people, Irish workers have saved more, yet they've spent more in retail. So there's it just, the government seem to be, as you said, completely disconnected, especially when you hear that, you know, Eamon Ryan calling for the banning of two-for-one meal deals, like which very low-paid workers re, like completely depend upon. Um, and people, you know, are, are walking along aisles looking for deals so that they can actually feed their, their kids because, and this leads me on to Michael Taft's article, um, which obviously isn't in any of the newspapers, but notes on the front, his uh, blog site, Michael Taft, who's a, a, a trade union researcher, talks about how last year in 2019, we had a massive increase in uh, deprivation in Ireland. A massive increase during, before COVID, before any of this sort of stuff was, was kicking off. And at that point, now we, we did in Mandate and Unite uh, several years ago, we did a report on food poverty. One in 10 people in Ireland already experienced food poverty. And now you're going to tell people that you're banning two for one deals. I mean, are they trying to make it even worse? Like you just, you couldn't make it up. The, the, um, how disconnected some. You can see it, Dave, as well in the reductions. So in the grocery department in the evenings, you do reductions on food that's going off and stuff. And the crowd of people that actually wait for that to happen is increasing all the time. And there's more and more people coming in, looking particularly for the reduced food. Like, and it gets, it gets kind of dodgy like you know what i mean there's more and more people coming in there's more and more people feeling an awful lot of pressure financially to be able to feed their families like and you can see it you can see it on the shop floor yeah and it's it's quite the things that will be worrying as well is the increased numbers of layoffs like a lot of people have been obviously working on this wage subsidy scheme and a bit of assistance there but there seems to be now a lot more layoffs um, being introduced and the problem with that now is that and there's a an anomaly in the new system that you can't employ for a new COVID unemployment claim um, at any time after the 17th of September but there are workers now who are being told that they're going to be laid off say at the end of September so they know they're going to lose their job but they're not going to get the COVID payment now because you can't claim after uh, the 17th of September. So it means the difference of those people getting the 350, 300 a week being plummeting down to maybe 200, and if they're single parents, a lot less. So those uh, impoverished workers or out-of-work workers are going to be even more impoverished going forward as more and more companies are getting into the layoff period. I think there's still, is there still restrictions, Dave? You probably know more than me, you know, but then there's still restrictions on people being able to apply for redundancies. Yeah, no, that's still in place. So yeah. at the start of the crisis, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, Claire, when they changed the redundancy legislation uh, to bring in, you know, the temporary wage subsidy scheme and all the rest of it, what they did was in, in, the, in the past, if you were laid off for four weeks, you had the right, like temporary layoff, you had the right to seek redundancy um, from your employer. They got rid of that. Um, so a company can still make you redundant. So they didn't change that part of the legislation, obviously, as we, we'll get to talk about Debenhams in a couple of minutes. Um, so the company can still make you redundant, but you can't apply for redundancy yourself, which was obviously <laughs> suiting capital over suiting labor. Um, which, you know, if you're going to change one of those laws, you should change both of them. Uh, but they didn't do it. One of the other stories, by the way, in, in the, and it's related to that, you know, the, the people milking the system, um, AIB decision on contact, contact, contactless the welcome. So AIB were going to be charging one cent for contact, contactless um, use of your card, which, you know, during a pandemic, you're, you, we should really be encouraging people not to be typing away their number into the system or, you know, using cash. 
But AIB decided they, in all their wisdom that they were going to start charging people for using contactless. Um, so they've reversed that. Um, but again, it comes back to this whole inequity and unfairness of, about a system. Like ba- banks, uh, many, a lot of the banks in the past, and they're getting rid of it now. But if you had 3,000 euros in your bank account, you don't get charged any fees whatsoever. And we talk about people who are living on the bread line. They have to pay all of those contactless fees and all of the other fees that they have. So if you basically, if you're, if you're from a wealthy family or you're doing quite well for yourself, you don't have to pay any banking fees. And if you're really struggling, you do have to pay them. It's nonsense. It's, it's, it's a crazy system. Like crazy stuff. Yeah. Owen, just we move on because Claire has raised it here about redundancies. I mean, you've yeah. been down on the Debenhams picket lines for the last, whatever, I don't know, three, four months. Um, do you want to tell us about the what's going on down in Debenhams? I'm going to recuse myself from this conversation yeah, yeah. in a little bit but um, uh, as, a, as a mandate employee. But uh, if you want to tell us what's going on in the Debenhams. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been out every day that they've been out here in Galway that I haven't been working myself, you know, and... and Jesus talking an incredible bunch of people. I mean, absolutely inspiring. Um, 150 days today, you know, like out. Um, like we all know there was a deal floated in the media there during the week. Um, there's nothing on paper yet, of course, like, and you know, the workers down there in Galway have been as practical as they are. have decided to hold off any judgment on it until they read it, you know, themselves. Um, but from what has been reported in the media, I think any of them that are on the picket line are going to vote that down because I mean, it's a terrible deal. Like uh, now, in fairness, it's the best man they probably could have gotten out of them. Like, there's very little doubt about that, you know. Um, but uh, it's it's insulting, really, to the workers what KPMG have offered them. You know, um, the liquidators. It's a, it's it's an insult for someone. It's a bit pirate, It's a bit yeah. They were talking about or something like a million or something between nearly a thousand workers. Like, I mean, can yeah. they actually be serious about putting something like that to? to workers that seems mad it, it, it is like and um it's like kind of five hundred thousand first and then when the stock is all gone another five hundred thousand and thirty three percent of the net profit of the stock that they could fire sale off for so something like that again i mean i'm i'm, I'm gonna hold my own judgment really until i see it on a on a, on a piece of paper you know on a, on a written document as a, as a as a deal that's gone out to them to vote on um but i i, I really don't see them passing a deal like that like i mean it's it's yeah, it's pathetic, really, um, and and an insult to them that have been out on the picket line in the rains and the storm and everything for the last 150 days. Um, but I mean, leaving the deal aside, I mean the way they've conducted themselves and like the the, the work those workers have put in, like have been an absolute inspiration to me. Like um, incredible people, and and in fairness to the to the to the parties as well, like from the likes of Solidarity and PVP, there's been great support in Galway. We've all been getting on very well, like and. Um, it's I think it's been really inspiring for people as well, hasn't it? Even here, like through the lockdown and that, I you know, used to see, watch the bits and pieces going on in terms of solidarity action for Debenhams, but it has kind of captured the mood of the population as well, hasn't it? It kind of summed up yeah, a lot. Yeah, it, it really has, like, and, and I mean, there'd probably be even bigger support on the streets if there wasn't so many restrictions in regard to the amount of people we can gather, like with COVID and stuff. They've been very careful in trying to in trying to manage that themselves, you know. And um, like we had a great rally here now in Galway yesterday, and uh, we had a couple of hundred people kind of in the space of the few hours floating down, offering their support and heading on again to you know, other people. Um, you know, uh, the likes the support we've gotten from John Carty on the picket line down here, our, our local official, like has been has been incredible. Like he's been down here every day as well, you know. Um, 
so yeah, it's um, this only- general public. I mean, every car that passes practically is beeping. You know, I mean, it's the the support is across the board. Like, this I don't think they've met anybody that wouldn't wish these workers get everything that they deserve. You know, yeah, I know, and I think while your point is 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 well made, like let's wait and see what's actually in the deal. It probably won't be dramatically different than what's been rumored in the. No, paper. I can't imagine it would be like. Yeah, and based on that, I mean, the public that's already on the side of the Devon and workers is going to do the basic maths and kind of divide even the one million by a thousand or whatever. And they kind of go, ah, lads, now come on. Like, this is just not even, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to see how the, if anything, I think the public would be more emboldened to say, listen, these workers deserve justice and it doesn't come in a, a package looking like that. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, the, the very, you know, the fr- a frustrating thing about all of this stuff, uh, and we've, we've spoke, spoken about, you know, the legislation being changed at the start of the pandemic, um, and we've, we've seen it over the years, Claire, you were in the doll when they were making massive changes to the, uh, well, changes to legislation to bail out banks and all the rest of it, and turn, you know, uh, debt into, um, into state debt, but I mean, we're 150 days into pickets, these workers are on the line, 150 days, hail, rain, storm, sunshine, the whole lot. And yet the government still hasn't put forward any legislation to stop this type of behavior from happening again. And I mean, as I say, the frustration doesn't just stem from from this dispute, but the proposed legislation, the Duffy Cattle Report, that came about in 2016 on the back of the Cleary's issue. And as I mentioned on the show before, you know, the Paris bakery issue was in 2013, 14, where, you know, a number of us had to sleep in the bakery for two weeks to try and get those workers the money that was owed to them and speed up the, the redundancy situations. But, uh, and before Paris bakery, we had La Senza. And before that, we had HMV. And before that, I mean, this, this is been an ongoing situation that the government has just put its fingers in its ears and said we don't want to hear any of this if they turned up to the picket line Michal Martin the Taoiseach has been on the picket lines he's met with the workers he's promised them that there'll be changes made and he still hasn't done anything about it 150 days into the strike um, so it, it's it's a really annoying frustrating thing that when they're right now into the, we've ended the temporary wage subsidy scheme we're going into this new employee wage subsidy scheme thing uh, and that means more pressure on companies and many more companies are going to fold. And yet we still haven't dealt with this issue of, of these tactical insolvencies. And when I say tactical insolvencies, people might be wondering what that is. But that's what these things are, tactical insolvencies, where companies transfer assets out of the business before they let everybody go so that the workers can't access their redundancies. Uh, from from the company and they have to go to the state, the state's insolvency fund. And proposals have been made by the trade union movement over and over again. Uh, for instance, in Belgium and in Germany, I believe there's a, a part of the employer PRSI that siphoned off into an, an insolvency fund where the employers pay for it. Ireland doesn't have that system. And when we're looking at the potential for tens of thousands of redundancies. You would think that the Irish government would be bringing in legislation to protect the state. When I say protect the state, one of the parts of the Duffy Cal report is if a company transfers assets out of the business in the same way that Cleary's and Debenhams did, that the state will be able to chase down those assets and get that money back to pay the workers what they're owed. 
And the Irish government is refusing to do that. And you wonder why they're putting themselves on the hook for paying the redundancies of tens of thousands of people when they can chase, legally could, could potentially chase out those assets down and bring them back into the ownership. And again, one of the other parts of the Duffy Cal report, which would have prote protected and, and prevented this happening to the Devlin's workers, is those workers have a collectively agreed a redundancy package of four weeks pay per year of service. Duffy Cahill report makes a recommendation that that should be recognised almost like a contract um, so that the workers are not paid statutory of two weeks pay, but for the full four weeks so that they, the state would pay that and then the state can go and chase the assets back. So that's where my frustration lies is that we're just not seeing anything on paper from the government yet. Yeah, I mean, it's the, f the fact that they haven't done anything yet and there's potentially thousands of more redundancies coming down the line like is 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 a scary thing especially for you know a lot of our workers a lot of our members in mandate of course working for companies that could potentially do the exact same thing tomorrow morning and get away with it and we'd all be out with the Debenhams workers ourselves on the picket line trying to fight for the same thing that they're fighting for you know um, it's it is incredibly frustrating, and, and, and I mean, it kind of ties into what we were talking about already. Just how far removed this government is from the reality of ordinary people, and uh, uh, like, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, your point, I think, is is really right to bring this issue back to the government and successive governments, because in essence, what Debenhams have been allowed to do is legalise theft. But I mean, we shouldn't be surprised. These are the same crowd who let Apple. You know, we fought the 13 billion from Apple, for God's sake, like, you know, it's the equivalent of the tax avoidance that goes on in Ireland, legalized theft from workers and citizens to benefit big business. And it's the hallmark, really, of the way in which Irish capitalism manages itself and that it's so weak. But the cost, unfortunately, is, is on uh, workers. Yes, yeah. yeah. And uh, just while we have you there, Claire, and seeing as you might be an expert on this side of things, Von der Leyen, um, the article about the new proposed uh, Irish government representatives. Mm. First of all, before you get into it, 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 I find it very bizarre that the candidates that were all being mooted were all Fine Gael candidates at a time when Fianna Fáil are le leading the government and the Taoiseach. Um, you, what do you make of the two nominees? Uh, you've obviously worked with Mairead McGuinness for a while. I don't know if you know the other candidate at all, Andrew McDowell, but... Only by reputation and as Enda Kenny's advisor, need I say more? <laughs> um, you know, that kind of gives a bit of a clue, all right. Um, yeah, I mean, look, at, um, the Fine Gael bit is kind of, that's the way they do it. We have a, a gentleman's government here and it was a Fine Gael uh, position. So obviously they decided that Fine Gael were going to uh, keep it. It's viewed out here like, I mean, it's a bit of a fuck up in one level for Ireland in the sense of they're definitely going to lose the, the trade portfolio. And that is, trade is one of the few EU competencies where the EU actually decides, you know. And while, you know, there are many times I would have liked to have seen Phil Hogan lose his job uh, over issues he did in Ireland, shall I go, water charges, septic tanks, household charge, etc. And here in the EU for, you know, deals that he stood over, like the Mercosur deal and so on. The fact that he, he is kind of out of that job for what he did in, in Ireland is, is one that's hard for people to understand here because his replacements are going to be very weak. I mean, the commission that's there at the moment is incredibly weak anyway. Um, he was one of the big hitters in it. His replacements, Mairead McGuinness is an MEP. Now people go, oh, she's the vice, vice president of the parliament, but 
to be honest, all that means is you chair the meetings, you know what I mean? It doesn't really give you, and before she was an MEP, she was a, an RTE presenter. So I'm not really sure like that that gives you a huge, you know, mandate. But that said, uh, none of the rest of the commissioners will be much better anyway. But I mean, the inside track here is Mairead McGuinness is very well known. A lot of the groups are going to take the issue, oh, it's a woman, we'll vote for a woman. Um, von der Leyen, by saying to the Irish government, nominate two. I mean, my attitude to that was, um, but out, love, we'll, Ireland will decide who we nominate. We don't need you telling us who to nominate kind of thing, you know. By her insisting on two nominees going forward, the view would be, uh, she's very friendly with Mairead McGuinness, I think. Owl Andrew can pack his bags. I don't think he has a chance in hell. Um, to be honest, with getting this position. But I really thought Ireland should have put forward just one because it leaves the decision really to Europe rather than to Ireland itself. But look at whoever it is, is going to go into a very neoliberal uh, commission, a very disorganised and weak commission where Germany ruled the roost. And I, I wouldn't be confident that either the two nominees are going to put them under any pressure or shake things up in any great sense at all. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk to you a little bit uh, because I, I did listen to your podcast yourself and Mick Wallace's podcast. And if any listeners are interested in hearing what's happening in Europe, it's it's worth tuning into. I foresee trouble. I, like, I do like the the pun on the name as well. But the uh, you're talking about you know the stuff that Phil Hogan has done as a commissioner or stood over in in Europe and Mercosur is, is obviously one that. Some listeners will know about, but many won't have a clue about Mercosur or the Vietnam deal. Um, can you tell us just a, a small bit about what's happening with the trade deals that are going on, particularly in the light of you know climate change and, and COVID? Really worrying stuff, you know what I mean? And I mean, that there is... I suppose what really sickens us out here is that the media are not in any way interested in covering all the key issues that are taking place here that are seriously impacting on people's lives in Ireland, in, in Europe and so on. And then they're all het up over Phil Hogan and his dinner and then the next week they're gone and they forget all about it. Now, Mercosur is huge. This is a deal that's been negotiated between the European Union and the Mercosur countries, which are the big countries in South America, Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, was in Mercosur, they've been kicked out now and actually Argentina have a more left-wing uh, government elected now so they're getting a bit lukewarm in terms of this trade deal but the, the ladybird version of it is it's a trade deal between the two uh, big blocks. The big winners out of it I suppose are going to be uh, from a European sense the car industry and big pharma. Uh, the big winners in uh, the Brazil end and South America end are big uh, corporate beef producers, corporate agriculture. So big processors are going to win and agriculture is going to lose back in Ireland and in the rest of Europe, small farmers are going to be really impacted because, and as you say, the climate is going to be seriously damaged because they're allowing in the import of huge amounts of, of beef from South America. And in order to do that, and a lot of feed, soy and grain. So the rainforests are being literally burnt to the ground and destroyed in order to feed uh, this fren frenzy to the detriment of European agriculture and to the detriment of the planet. And you can be guaranteed that the indigenous peoples who have been driven off their lands in South America aren't going to win uh, from this either. So that, that is the type of deal that's been done, the Vietnam deal which Phil Hogan negotiated as well, was something similar. 
Uh, again, you're dealing with a country where there's a lot of problems, but say economically might have a bit of a growing middle class that they want to sell their cars to and so on, and that they want to get access to their uh, markets. So it's all, you know, the, the real neoliberal stuff, but it is a huge uh, climate impact and there's a huge political impact as well because it's not just a trade deal it's a kind of a political deal as well now the european commission will say oh no no but we're working with brazil if if we don't do these trade deals with them we're helping them to keep their paris goals and their climate targets but that's just a nonsense brazil is lying about what it's doing in terms of uh, the environment and the eu knows that and they're just covering it up i suppose there has been huge opposition uh, from the agricultural sector in Ireland to this because they know farmers are going to be impacted. I mean, with the irony of even Fianna Fáil when they were in opposition were given out about Mercosur. We'll see what's going to happen. I mean, trade, as I said, is a European competence. So what we're worried about, and Mick Wallace had asked the Commission this question this week, but they worryingly didn't answer him, is that it's likely they're going to divide the deal in a couple of ways, salami tactics, to allow the Commission to bring in parts of it over the heads of the likes of Ireland, which normally would need to see a vote on this type of thing, because I don't think Irish people would agree to this deal going ahead, but it's possible they might try and bring it in through a sleight of hand backdoor sort of um, way of doing things. Right, uh, that all sounds very interesting. Um, tell us, Claire, just before we move off from this uh, sort of stuff, Brexit, um, do you have any update for us on what's happening with Brexit? It's, it's starting to make the newspapers here again. Uh, Brexit's back, as I said, on, is the, the headline of the on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Um, has there been any more developments? I mean, all the talk now is in four months' time and no-deal Brexit, you know, tariffs and all the rest of that. What's happening in Europe? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the word isn't too bad. I mean, it, it depends on the different committees. Like, we, we had a meeting this week where they were dealing with the Eurotunnel issue and there is some negotiations there, but the overall, the mood music isn't good, like, and the word is, is that the Brits are not really... Uh, engaging. So I suppose in that context, Ireland losing the trade brief and it being handed over to the likes of one of the other bigger countries who are obviously salivating at the idea of getting their paws on it is probably not uh, the best timing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it looks like that could happen. I mean, with the, the UK getting ready now to with their new additions to their advisory role with Tony Abbott joining the team, uh, you won't be in a huge uh, sort of looking forward to whatever deal is coming out of that. But look, it's beginning to be spoken about more, but it does seem that uh, things aren't going well for sure. Uh, Tony Abbott was a, a very interesting one. I mean, Tony Abbott, I, I know him going back from my time working in the trade union movement in Australia, where they brought in a carbon tax over there, um, which was a really progressive one. I, I'm not sure if you've, you're aware of their carbon tax, but in 2011, the, the Labour Party government brought in a, a carbon tax on 900 of the biggest companies and corporations. So the biggest, only the biggest companies would pay, no households paid it whatsoever, and it was to raise 3 billion euros, uh, and which it did do, by the way, in the first one or two years that they had it in play. But what was really good about that, carbon tax was that it redistributed well so it took money from the big emitters and it gave a a tax relief to the lowest income families so you start paying tax at six thousand dollars in australia they moved it up to eighteen thousand dollars and so that everybody had more money in their back pocket that was one third of it was used up for that another third was used up for trade exposed industries if they couldn't cut their carbon emissions they got a refund on what they had paid into it and the other one third was used to uh for innovative design 
designs and you know uh, climate tackling industries they were you know solar plants and all that sort of stuff um, so it was a really progressive thing but Tony Abbott being the climate change denier and I'm not using that as a like you know uh, I'm not exaggerating the guy doesn't believe in the stuff he, he's he's a mental no. he's, he's crazy like and he's a sexist mm. he's a misogynist he's he's a racist he even took a pop at Ireland in the um, in the parliament I don't know if you are aware of this but when he was having a go at the Labour government of the day he said, uh, this government reminds me of that Irish gambler who uh, lost £10 on a race and then lost £20 on the replay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is the guy they put in charge of their trade. So it's a, it's a fascinating insight into uh, uh, Boris Johnson's appointees. Well, but, it is. I mean, they say the post is unpaid. Like, So what's that about? Like, Why is he getting involved? Like, you know, So a big sort of lumpy, misogynistic, awful creature like you know like that where's his expertise as you say his expertise is coming from robbing the poor and giving it over to the rich like really yeah Crazy. that's why and that's why he's there <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that's exactly it and um, we'll go to you now you you, you were reading up on the Avini Suluan um, article do you want to tell us a little bit of, uh, about the background to that and what happened in that case yeah, it's uh, Una Mullally's piece in the Weekend Review, there again in the Irish Times Weekend Edition, just on, on the story of Amy Hulavon and two years of disgraceful harassment she had to put up with in, in her workplace. Like, it, goes in, it goes into quite a amount of detail like, um, into what she had to put up with. Like, and uh, you know, even just one of the, the, the sub-headlines there, Hulavon spent the week in the run-up to her wedding fearful that Braun would contact her and turn up. I mean, what kind of a situation is that like where you... Going in, facing into your wedding, your one of the happiest days of your life, supposedly, and worrying about someone who's just an employee that happens to work in the same place as you, showing up at your wedding, like harassing you to that level, is is, is a disgrace. But what it, what it really points out to me is that the an over reliance on HR, like and um, the HR departments, HR departments don't exist to the benefit of workers. Like HR departments are there to protect the institution. Or the organisation that they happen to be there for, like, um, and and that goes for every employment, you know. Um, I I I think it kind of ties into the work we do in uni as well, in the in the kind of international union that Mandate are affiliated to, and a big push that we've been doing for the last few months in the ILO convention, the International Labour Organisation Convention 190 on harassment and violence in the workplace, and um, if in a country adopts that how it can help in regards to involving trade unions and workers' organisations in developing policies and procedures to put in place to prevent this kind of harassment from happening, rather than relying entirely on HR systems within organisations, which, as we said already, only exist to protect the organisation itself. Um, but I would recommend everyone to read that article. I mean, it's, it's, it's outrageous what, um, what, what Avian had to put up with. Like, and I mean, we're always talking about um, having inspirational and, and uh, women in particular in the STEM sectors, you know, in the science and technology and engineering and um, of, of all the people. I mean, Avian is an absolute, um, an absolute uh, hero in that regards and an inspiration to, to a whole generation of people going into that field of work, you know, and, and to get yourself to a position where you're, where you're teaching in a university and to just be absolutely harassed by somebody in there. And, and frankly, according to uh, reading that article, UCD did nothing. You know what I mean? They did absolutely nothing to help and protect that 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 employee. You know, um, yeah. Yeah. I think that was 
the most striking thing, really, wasn't it? Mm, when it you was, read yeah. and fair, fair play to her for coming forward. I mean, I, I think it could be incredibly important for a load of other people in the same situation to see someone of her caliber come forward and, and explain what happened to her. I, I think that's really important. She shouldn't have had to do it. But I mean, as you say, UCD did nothing over years on this. I mean, one of the other things, this individual followed her. Actually, the promoted, promoted the person. Yeah. And I mean, this fellow was this severe harassment um, and like presumably they have a, a case to answer. And I mean, you're right, it is a total workplace issue. I mean, that person should have been, everybody should have refused to have worked with him and that like if they, obviously a lot of people wouldn't have known what was going on, but it's a far better way. Workers themselves can deal with these issues far better than uh, any HR comp uh, com section can for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the best way to protect yourself in that regard is to join a union, you know. Um, mm. It's unions, really, that are going to make that difference, not HR departments. Mm. Um, and keep those HR departments honest. And, and that, that leads me into a, another article that's not a, <laughs> what I actually want to talk about. But in the examiner, I love these pieces, by the way, in, in Irish newspapers where they go from the archives, you know, and there's an article from 1985 about Spike Island prison riots are over. And they're talking about what happened uh, in 1985, where all of the Alcatraz-type Alcatraz island prison was um, under uh, revolt from the, 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 the prisoners. And they eventually got it under control and all the rest of it. But that's not really what I wanted to talk about because, you know, it didn't get any coverage. But I don't, so you probably weren't aware of this, Claire, or own. Um, but uh, the, the Spike Island is now one of Ireland's leading tourist attractions. And the staff in uh, the ticket desk had no toilet uh, facilities whatsoever. And we're told by the company, which makes millions in profits, to go and use the nearby Commodore, I think it is, hotel uh, toilets, uh, rather than supply them with it. But anyway, this, this has been going on for years, and the workers themselves were, were obviously agitated and annoyed about it. But they were put at ease when the management told them, look, we're getting you as a new hut where we will provide a toilet in it so they waited for it the hut was built provided to them this is only a couple of months ago in the middle of the pandemic <clears throat> when it was open and then <clears throat> from that they realized very quickly there's no toilet in this hut so again they were told to use the <laughs> hotel across the road to go toilet so a complaint was made by the workers to the hsa health safety authority who did nothing absolutely nothing and said look you can use the toilet in the hotel if they're allowing you. But it was when those workers got into Unite, Unite organized them, and they managed now to force a port on the uh, company to provide a toilet for these workers. I, I mean, it's 2020. In the middle of a pandemic, they're making workers go to a public toilet in a hotel, risking infection and spreading that infection because these workers are dealing with tourists coming in and out of a tourist attraction. So one of them catches something... <coughs> And all of a sudden, hundreds of tourists are under quarantine and, and, and trying to figure it out. But anyway, just thought it was a positive story about the trade union taking action and, and, and making changes. Uh, I did have another article that I wanted to... Oh, it's not an article. Again, it's another story that both of you might want to come in on, seeing as all three of us actually have just realized our former shop stewards uh, or, or current shop stewards. And, and Claire, a lot of people probably wouldn't know, but Claire was a shop steward in Erlingus for many, many years before she became a politician. Um, but uh, Joan Collins' speech in the Dáil uh, during the week, uh, and Claire, I know you have a history with the Gardaí, so you might want to comment on this, but uh, the, uh, the Gardaí uh, are getting extra powers to close down house parties and all that sort of stuff. And Joan Collins, rightly, in my opinion, when she stood up and spoke, said, look, that's all well and good, give the Gardaí powers, probably don't 
she didn't say whether she was in favour or against it, but she said that's not the source of the problem with house parties. The pro source of the problem seems to be in meat factories and employments. So why are you giving Gardaí extra powers to go into house parties? Give trade unions extra powers to go in and talk to the workers and improve the health and safety in meat packing plants and in other places where this virus is spreading. Uh, you know, the, it's again, it's, it's almost a distraction from the government to start pointing at those uh, house parties rather than the actual real culprits uh, in these precarious nature employments where they're hiring people on minimum wage or even trying to pay below minimum wage in many instances. Uh, but it was a really good speech saying we should have the same rights, uh, workers should have the same rights as they have in Australia and New Zealand where unions can go in and do health and safety inspections and close down a place if it's not abiding by it. Uh, I don't know if either of you want to come in on that. I, you probably haven't seen that story because it's not covered. I saw, your, I saw your tweet on it and I thought fair play to Joan because it was really, uh, it was really fitting all right and gets exactly to the point. I mean... I don't know if Joan was silent on the Garda thing, but I would be very, very reticent, be very careful about giving the Garda any extra powers because once they get these powers, they really are very shy about giving them back. Uh, and it's not the solution uh, to these issues at all. Like, you know, I know a lot of people are frustrated. They probably think, oh, there needs to be action. People are flagrantly um, breaking, breaking COVID regulations. But is that really true? in a willful way, and how do you best deal with that? I mean, you deal with that through uh, not giving the guard the extra powers for sure. Like, that is incredibly uh, dangerous as far as I'm concerned. I mean, Mick made the point uh, in the Parliament the other day. I mean, we see the Irish government change and the Shamrock Rovers are going to be playing AC Milan. Nobody's going to be able to go and watch the uh, match in Shamrock Rovers grounds with social distancing. Think, yet there's going to be pubs and house parties full of people watching it like mm. it doesn't make any sense the guidelines really there needs to be more clear guidelines and better education but we definitely don't need uh, extra guard powers yeah the extra guard power will definitely worry me too like i mean to give the guards the power to to come into your house without a warrant at all for any reason uh whether to shut down a house party or whatever it is is a, is a scary development for sure um but the, yeah, I think it's 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 a massive distraction again. Like when you have the government standing up blaming young people and house parties for the spread of a disease, when and like it's quite obvious what's going on in the meat factories and direct provision centres, which mm. is which is the other place, an absolutely disgraceful system of direct provision, and um, they're completely ignoring it and just pointing over it at, at, at a bunch of people in a house um, having having a few drinks, like saying the guards are going to kick down your door. I think is a bit mad, like. Um, and so again, I mean, again it's another example of, of, of the, the, the separation, you know, and, and how far removed they are from the reality of ordinary people. Like. Mm. No, I think you're totally right. And I think because this focus is there, some people are believing that that is the root cause of it, and they're taking their eye off the ball on the bigger pictures of the meat pack, pack, packing places, of the direct provisions and the like. It's just completely wrong. Yeah, and I mean, even like we haven't got enough health and safety inspectors as it is. And, and the point that Joan was making that they've repeated there of, of giving unions the power to go in and inspect places. I mean, that should be happening. COVID or no COVID, unions mm. should have the capacity to enter, enter a workplace and um, do health and safety inspections. Like, um, I'm thinking again about pubs in my own sector in retail. I mean, there's gaps all over the place, you know. 
Um, and I think, is, is it true as well, Dave, that the Health and Safety Authority have to um, actually notify a meat factory before they even go in and <laughs> inspect it? Uh, I think this is a quite a funny one. They don't have to, but they did. They let, they, uh, it seems to be the same for both health and safety inspections and workplace compliance inspections as well, where they notify the employer so that they can get their act together before they come in. And the reasoning that the HSA gave for notifying the meat plants before they came in to do their inspections was we were afraid that things were going to be so bad in there that our inspectors might catch something. So we got them to clean up before. I mean, how disrespectful is that to the staff that were working in there? You guys, you can be risking your lives every single day. When our guys go in, we're going to look after them and make sure they're all right. But you guys go fuck yourselves. And um, that situation a couple of weeks ago where they were informing the employers that their employees were sick before they were informing the employees themselves. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there is an article on the Gardaí stuff here because um, not on that separate issue, and, and we'll move on in a second. I just thought maybe Claire might want to talk about it, but it's it's a Barry Cowan article, um, and they're calling it the leaks and the fallouts. Jody Corcoran's piece in the Sunday Independent just. Um, there's a part of the article where it's talking about fewer than 10 Gardaí access pulse record of Cowan offence. So they, they, they're able to trace back to 10 Gardaí who, who looked at that, about where the... The, the, the leak came from and as we know Barry Cowan was treated a little bit different to your experience with the Gardaí uh, like, or 200, 200 people access pulse on my one or whatever uh, there was a lot more I can't remember the outcome of the GSOC investigation but uh, look at uh, there's no doubt about it Barry Cowan is going to get a lot of money out of this when this court case is had mm. no question or doubt about it yeah well, you better cut that bit out, but you know, uh, I know if you're editing this bit, Dave, but I suppose what you can say is, is that he's going to get a lot of money out of this case. Um, they will be able to, it, it will come back uh, on the guards for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, just for the listeners, and I'm sure they're all aware, but um, you know, Claire was stopped by the Gardaí and a leak, a leak was made uh, immediately, before you'd even got out of the Gardaí station or something. Um, and uh, yeah, it was all over newspapers. They printed it about you potentially drink driving. It turned out that you weren't. Um, but on this case, there was silence for four years uh, on the Barry Cowan offence. And then yeah. all of a sudden he gets a minister position and he's, uh, he's outed on that. So there's, I mean, we talk about giving the Gardaí extra powers. Is this the type of uh, extra people you want to give extra powers to? Um, on that stuff. Look, Owen, you mentioned as well about direct provision. Right next to that article, um, or, or well, actually, sorry, no, it's in a different paper. It's in the Examiner. Um, Michael Clifford, who's a really good journalist on some of this stuff, has written a huge piece about time for a new direction, and it's talking about the direct provision system. And um, it, he, in it, I mean, I hadn't even seen this these survey results myself before. Um, direct provision for listeners that don't know is where asylum seekers are really put into cages effectively and, and, and cramped up and this survey from the uh, Irish Refugee Council on August 10th about the conditions during the pandemic found that half of all respondents were unable to social distance from other residents 55% felt unsafe during the pandemic 42% were sharing a room with non-family members 42% sharing rooms with non-family members 5% shared with as many as four people in those rooms um, in one case, a resident said that he was sharing a room with 11 others, and we wonder why COVID outbreaks in these direct provision centres spread it around communities all over the country as well. But yeah, it's a horrific system, and they need to replace it. What they replace it with is the question, and he's got some articles here about 
um, Sweden system, the UK system, the Spanish system uh, for asylum seekers, which all seems to be a lot more efficient where, you know, all of them seem to interview the asylum seekers almost immediately. In Ireland, you can be in direct provision for 11, 12, 13 years and um, waiting on a, a judgment, a ruling, um, where everywhere else appears to be far, far quicker. I don't know, Claire, have you any European observations on that stuff? Yeah, I mean, look, at uh, one of the last jobs, I suppose, we did in the Dáil before we came to Europe was a Justice Committee report into direct provision, and we would have highlighted a lot of the points along the lines of what Mick would be, would be dealing with, I'd imagine, in the uh, article. Um, other countries, yeah, I mean, migration is a huge issue out here. Like, it's morning, noon, and night because of the countries, I suppose, that are on the cold face. Uh, there's huge overcrowding and problems, to be honest, in the likes of Greece and Italy, uh, in Cyprus and Malta. We've had terrible situations of refugees being left to drown and so on. But yeah, the process when they do get to a lot of the countries is a lot quicker than Ireland. I mean, we have to remember direct provision was supposed to be a temporary measure 20 years ago, and it's still here. And it's only in the last two years or so that um, asylum seekers and refugees in direct provision have had the right to go and look for a job, which was one of the reasons why we saw the sort of crossover between the meat processing and the, the lowly paid jobs that these workers were on the one hand uh, working close together in work and then going home. What a, a, an awful way to describe direct provision, but that was where they were going home to shared rooms with non-family members. And that's why the spread was sort of a magnet between uh, the two places but um look migration is, is an issue that's constantly uh, discussed in the eu the point that we make to them which they never join the dots on is that a lot of the reason why we have a lot of of migrants is because of the interference and the militarism of the likes of the us and european countries which make a lot of these people refugees in the first place and they never join the dots so we've the same companies that are spending money uh, on uh, getting money from arms manufacturing which is going to kill people in the likes of the middle east and so on and then these are the same companies benefiting from uh, security contracts on the the borders of europe to keep the victims out well we're nearly out of time thanks for that claire um uh, but I, I just again I, mean, I know i mentioned that at the start but there is a big article in the in both the sunday independent and the examiner and i'm sure all the other newspapers probably have it too about tiago cortez again the brazilian who was killed uh, deli delivering food um and it's uh, this, this article is an interview with his friend his best friend talking about how he gets and here i'll give you a couple of quotes i get paid per delivery a lot of the time we don't make the minimum wage we don't have enough deliveries in an hour Philippe uh, is the Philippe Santos is the Silva is the the name of the guy. We we uh, he he clocked up an average of between three euros and five euros per delivery, uh, and that means that he has to navigate, as he says, through uh, traffic and pedestrians and the, the goes through all the different uh, obstacles that they have. Right, and he talks about a car or a bus will change lanes across us without looking. They will nearly kill us without thinking, without meaning to. It's frightening. It's like we are invisible. Um, he said it's not the only threat that they face in terms of traffic. It's also antisocial behavior uh, with many cyclists being attacked. And there was a video leaked during the week of um, a, a bunch of Irish uh, people attacking these workers and having a big fight with them. We have people who come and try and steal our bicycle. They will punch us in the face and try to take it. We have to face these groups as, of thugs who attack us uh, regularly. 
Um, and he goes on and on, and it's a really good article because it gives you an insight of what people are having to do right now in the middle of a pandemic uh, just to earn a living and try and put, keep the roof over their heads. Because again, as the government, uh, of, of this government of being out of touch, they loosen the rules around eviction. So these people are very concerned about losing their, their properties, their homes, the, the roof over their head and being stuck here uh, as a result. But on a positive note, um, from that story, you know, there's a GoFundMe that has been set up to repatriate Thiago back home to Brazil, and it's already raised over sixty thousand euros in twenty four hours. So that just shows you the, the 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 positive side to the Irish public. When 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 we're asked to chip in for something like this, we do. The general public are, are usually very very good on this sort of stuff. So um, I don't know. We're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes. But if own or clarities have any other stories you wanted to get in, now's the time. Yeah, it was just. Um Having a look at uh, our, our own shop floor there for Monday, Dave, and I was just uh, I, I still haven't, I mean, again, it's a, it's a huge publication. I mean, there's 40-something pages in it, so I haven't even gotten through it all yet. But just one I thought was important to highlight was the Occupied Territories Bill, again, you know, and, and the, the work that uh, Senator Francis Black has, has done over the years on that and how it's important we keep that. We keep talking about it and keep it in the, in, in, in the, front, in the front of people's minds because it hasn't gone away and we can still win it, I think, um, but again, you know, there's, there's work to be done. And this government, I mean, and I will point out Simon Coveney in particular, um, uh, have no interest in it at all. Uh, so, I mean, it'll be up to us again, you know, um, uh, supporters and, and people who stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people who put pressure on the Irish government to pass that, you know. I just wanted to mention that small bit. Well, I think Claire might have something to say on that, seeing as, and he, you might not have seen this, but the, the TD who took your seat, Joe O'Brien, um, after you left, he, he's obviously a minister at the moment. He's been to Palestine. He's um, been active. He got the actual in, into the Green Party policy to support the Occupied Territories Bill. He released a statement during the week talking about how in the past he believed that, you know, tackling from this sort of boycotting position was the right way to go. He now sort of realizes that that's not the uh, best avenue. I mean, it, it thinks to me of... Um, uh, the 1984 Dunstore's anti-apartheid strike when everyone kept telling them they were silly little girls for being out on picket and you couldn't impact on international trade affairs uh, 10, 11 shop workers couldn't and he's now you know from being in a position of supporting that to now saying look maybe I'm better off being a minister and arguing from the inside I mean Jesus Christ. That's disgusting and I'm really surprised that Joe I wasn't aware of that and it, but it's what it reminds me of is exactly history repeating itself if you remember around the time of, of the uh, Iraq uh, war and, and the use of Shannon Airport the Greens were on all of the protests mm -hmm. then they went into government and suddenly they forgot all about it it didn't matter anymore. Francis's bill has been absolutely brilliant it's been a magnet for so many uh, other countries to look at this. There's a whole number of European countries looking at this now based on how even that she's got it as far as she has and what disgusting approach of the Greens and Fianna Fáil to fight an election uh, on that issue and then to abandon it, you know. It's it's definitely something that's not going to get a go away, um, you know, particularly in light of the, the latest developments with uh, Israel. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, it, I mean, when we see these things, these broken promises, and we never even got around to talking about, maybe we will just for a second, but the Donald Trump uh, stuff, because there is a couple of articles about Donald Trump um, in today's papers and the weekend's papers, which I had planned on reading out. Um, I'll see if I can find it. But basically, I mean, people talk about Donald Trump as, as if he's the devil incarnate, and he's awful, and I hate the man, and all the rest of it. As if the people before him were great. And th th this is what... what, what 
fucking pisses me off. Um, Reinvention of George Bush, like <laughs> George Bush, but even Barack Obama. And I know Claire, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you you have that viral video that went around when you were talking in the doll about Barack Obama. Donald Trump getting into the presidency is a direct result of Barack Obama and the hope that was built up around him being elected and then being let down. That just pushes people to the right. And this is exactly the same thing that we're seeing in Ireland. People who run on a certain platform get into government, break those promises, people become frustrated with the political system and move in a different direction, uh, which is not necessarily the best direction for them. Um, but, I mean, it, it really pisses me off to see these broken promises over and over again. We saw with the Labour Party going into government in 2011, then the, the minority government in 2016, where Fianna Fáil were promising to scrap water charges, but still trying to get them in through the back door. And we now have an emerging far right in Ireland, which we hadn't seen uh, in the history of the state. So um, I don't know if anyone wants to comment on that. Last comments. Yeah, just... Um you're right, like, it does, it, does, it does lead to that kind of stuff happening in Ireland too. And I mean, just in, in Galway, just to bring it back to a little bit of local, and there was a house burnt down, set for travellers to move into there um, during the week. And uh, there's an investigation uh, to, to, into the fire in this house. Um, it was, it's a bit dodgy because there was silage bales placed in front of the house before it, uh, it magically caught on fire, you know, to prevent the fire brigade from getting there to put out the fire um, and this this house was earmarked to house travellers from the city council um, in Galway and it's just a, it's a very scary development if it turns out that that house was burnt down you know um, a very very scary development but they have the problem is, is they have supposedly established right-wing politicians that are sort of um, supporting it and, and, and egging it on not directly but indirectly causing a lot of this kind of stuff to happen you know yeah. I mean, that, that article that I mentioned, uh, how are we going to recover from Donald Trump? And that opens up within a coffee shop in a village in West of Ireland. There is a sign that reads, please do not verbally abuse our staff. Uh, and she says, uh, who in their right mind thinks that it is acceptable to abuse teenagers serving tea, coffee and sandwiches during the pandemic? I mean, it's almost like she's blaming Trump being elected for now people uh, verbally abusing uh, workers. I mean, we did this research 10 years ago, respect retail, over 10 years ago now, respect retail workers that showed that 10% of retail workers in Ireland were being physically abused during the course of their employment. 74% were being verbally abused. This is not new and it's not down to Donald Trump being elected. People have always been do doing this stuff. It's just that now that Trump is there, we're shining a little bit more light on it. So, Okay, well, look, we've, um, we've spoken for well over an hour now. I want to thank my guests on Fox and uh, Claire Daly for coming on and uh, we're talking about the news this week. This has been episode 19 of the week at work. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank thanks, guys.